God's word is basically clear. The fundamental truths of Christianity are basically clear. The passages upon which they are built are clear, clear enough to give you confidence that these doctrines are true and they are established upon the truthfulness of God's word. And when it comes to the doctrine of election, the issue isn't any different. As we continue on in our series, we are going to carefully critique an Arminian argument from Romans 9 against election. Because what it does is confuse and twist up a profoundly clear passage which presents the doctrine of sovereign individual election in Christ. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Hey, thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints as we continue on in our series on Calvinism. Of course, we're taking on bad arguments for why you shouldn't be a Calvinist. And if you haven't listened to some of the others, you're just joining us for the first time in this series. We are going through a book called Why I Am Not a Calvinist by Jerry Walls and Joseph Dongel, a couple professors from Asbury Theological Seminary. Now, we're not telling you to rush out and buy this book. I, I paid, I think here it says $15.99 plus tax. I'm not suggesting you go out and buy the book. We're doing uh, the buying and researching and critiquing for you, so we want you to sit still, open up a Bible, and listen to us. We're continuing on in our series, though. Uh, joining us, as usual, for our discussion is Reverend Adam Kalushin from Ontario United Reformed Church, Reverend Moses Genbazian from Pasadena URC, and I'm, of course, Pastor John Sautel, uh, pastor at All Saints Reformed Church in Diamond Bar. We're taking on today a critique of Romans chapter 9. It's not so much a critique of Romans Yeah, of course, it is a critique of Romans 9. It's a critique of the truth. But you see, Calvinists have uh, made very clear arguments based upon a proper interpretation of the text uh, that Romans 9 is indeed teaching a sovereign individual election by God. Now, the Arminians have to deal with the passage because it's in the Bible. If they claim to be Christians, if they claim to have a system of doctrine based upon Scripture, they cannot cover their eyes and, and plug their nose and pretend that Romans 9 isn't there. You have to deal with it, okay? And so here we have um, these two professors dealing with this passage, and uh, they're trying to get you to believe that Paul is really not talking about individual election here at all. Kind of reminds me when you're a little kid, you know, you're down playing by the lake and the, the water's clear and you jump in the shallow end of it and you start stomping around and pretty soon what was once clear becomes muddy and clouded. That's what they're doing. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look here, first of all, with Romans chapter 9. Uh, what we have to deal with is the issue beginning with verse 6 as Paul responds to the uh, dilemma here of Israelites, according to the flesh, are, are denying Christ, the Messiah, in droves, and, and, it, and it presents a problem to the Apostle Paul. He's concerned about it, and he's addressing it. Yeah, first of all, l- let me underscore what Pastor John is saying. This lack of clarity that's in this book. Sometimes you'll read an explanation of some passage of Scripture that is apparently complex, and the argument itself will be apparently complex and multifaceted, but the, by the time you get to the end, it emerges as this beautiful argument explaining so clearly what the Scripture is actually saying. And 
In this section of this book, Why I'm Not a Calvinist, discussing Romans 9 through 11 and arguing against the Calvinist interpretation of it, it tries to give the appearance of, of, of rich complexity and uh, coming through to describe this, this difficult passage in, in a careful way. But really, that's not what it does. It muddies something that is very clear. It gives the appearance of being uh, sensitive to all the subtleties of the passage, but really it's just jarbled. It took us a long time to try and figure out just the basic tenets of the argument, not because it's so brilliant and complex, but because it's just foolish. We want you to know that. The point is, it's very clear what's happening at the beginning of Romans 9. That's where Pastor John has taken us back here. And don't get distracted. What we have is the Apostle Paul heartbroken over the fact that some of his blood brothers, the Jews, have rejected Christ, and therefore if they persist in unbelief, they will be condemned. That's breaking his heart. At which point, someone lodges an objection against Paul. Paul, if you're saying that it's possible that some Israelites will be condemned, then you must be saying that God has failed because God promised that all the Israelites would be blessed. And Paul's response is the key to understanding Romans 9 through 11. Paul says, no, God has not failed. And the reason he has not failed is because you need to understand the principle of individual election, that God really never promised that every individual national Israelite was going to be glorified. He promised that only an elect few from among the Jews and also from among the Gentiles would be saved. That's his response to the objection, and it's very clear. And all for all of the argumentation that we're going to analyze in this show that comes from Walsh to try and overthrow that very obvious principle of individual national election that Paul is teaching, it just doesn't hold water. Okay, so with that setting up the situation here, our distinguished Arminian professors uh, try to make their argument by appealing not to the context of Romans chapter 9 in terms of the immediate verses and the way Paul explains or tries to, to account for how it is that these Israelites are rejecting the Messiah. They leapfrog forward over three chapters to the end of chapter 11, and they begin with a verse there that sets forth a sweeping uh, concept of God's universal mercy where it says, For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he have, may have mercy on all. Then they go on to comment on that saying, in other words, as wide as the problem of sin reaches, parenthesis universally, so wide has God's mercy spread in granting the possibility of salvation universally. So you see here what the premise is. The premise is that salvation is possibly spread to all. So that must be the controlling a lens through which to read everything that Paul says in Romans chapter 9 here about individual election. And sure enough, that's how they explain what appears to be election but is not. They say, no, really what Paul is getting into is an unseating of the principle of genealogical relationship to Abraham, not individual election. Let me give you some quotes here. They say on page 91, for instance, Paradoxically, then, God's selection of Isaac and Jacob over Ishmael and Esau ultimately served to broaden the flow of mercy by dethroning simple genetic connection to Abraham. They say on page 90, along the same lines, referring to the same texts, the same issues. 
They say, by standing in the, but standing in the way of Paul's teaching with a strong presumption of many Jews that Abraham's descendants were assured salvation and that any theology which allowed that an Israelite might be lost would render God's promise to Abraham a failure. So now they say to counter that kind of a theology, what they would consider a mistaken theology, they say to counter this view, Paul shows that a genealogical approach to salvation has never been valid even in Israel's own history. And that accounts then for why he reaches back into Old Testament history and the notable examples of the patriarchs and the foundational dealings of these early patriarchs and through them Israel. So here is, they argue, and this is for our discussion now, they argue that all that Paul is doing here in verses 6 through 13 is establishing that they're, uh, let me just quote it from the passage again, God's distinction between children within the genetic lineage of Abraham proves God's freedom to operate along lines other than genetic ties. There it is. Paul is abolishing the principle of salvation through a genetic connection to Abraham. Well, that's a true statement in terms of the scriptures have never taught that. But the problem is that they are now saying that this is the only argument that's being addressed, and they're not being honest in dealing with what Paul has already said throughout the whole book of Romans. He has established that it is not law-keeping that will save anyone because no one is able to do what God commands. There is no one righteous, no one does good, therefore all would be condemned if left to their own righteousness. And so as a consequence, he says there is something else that causes salvation or justification of sinners, and that is God's predestining love, the individual election of God prior to the creation of the world of certain individuals. And what they are seeking to do in this book is to discount that and say, no, 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 the whole thing is that everybody up to that point was confused and thought all Jews are automatically saved, and Paul is simply saying, no, that's not the case. Not all Jews are saved because not all of them believe, and therefore, since it's by faith, therefore Gentiles can also have access to the potential of salvation. Okay, let me talk at it from another angle. Same idea, just maybe I'm repeating it, but here's how they see Romans 9 to be properly understood. He said, okay, it starts with Paul in anguish because there are Jews, his blood brothers, who are unbelieving. Then the Jew arises with the objection, and they agree with us, our Armenian authors agree with us on what the objection is. Paul, you're saying that Israelites will be condemned because they don't have faith in Christ? Well, I thought God promised Abraham that all Israelites would be saved. Therefore, you're saying that God's word has failed. Now, here's where we depart from the, our Arminian professors. We say that his answer is, you should look back in the Old Testament and see that really God has only chosen some Israelites to be saved and some Gentiles to be saved too, and that accounts for why God has not failed. They are saying that Paul's answer to the objection that God has failed is, no, 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 no. Salvation has always been a matter of whether or not you have faith in Christ. And then they import the other Arminian idea that, as Pastor John read, that salvation is possible for everyone, whether they have faith. Well, look at Romans 9, 6. You can't just say, well, this is, what Paul, this is how I think Paul would respond. You have to look at actually how Paul responds to the objection and see that he's talking about individual election answering the problem, not the possibility of everyone being saved if they have faith. 9, 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, Paul assumes that they're correct about reading that 
when God promises Israel salvation, it really is a promise. We talked about this last time. He's not saying, no, you haven't understood the conditional nature of salvation, where God kind of offers it to everybody, but they have to have faith. He says, no, God did promise Israel salvation. The problem is you don't understand the objects or the recipients of the promise. You think it's every individual national Israel. I'm telling you it's the elect only among the Israelites. They are not all children because they are the seed of Abraham. He doesn't say, well, they all had the possibility of being children if they would just put their faith in Christ, and that's why God hasn't failed. He says, no, they are children when they are selected by God to be children. Well, very difficult, however, and this is this is something that really disappoints me about the critique because, hey, look, if somebody wants to challenge you, I don't mind them bringing it on. I like a good challenge. But the problem is there's no real challenge here. And the reason why there's no challenge here is because they don't deal with the text. The text is painfully clear. It says, though they were not yet born, this is verse 11, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Now tell me, does it sound to you like Paul is teaching individual election of Jacob apart from anything that he's done? Well, I think that's pretty much what it's saying. It's pretty evident. Now his response to that, it, it's humorous. It's so simplistic and childish, it's humorous. He says, now if these verses were stripped away from their place within the whole argument of Romans 9 through 11, then they quite easily conform to the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional individual election to salvation. That's ludicrous. Answer the issue of the text. Does Paul say that Jacob was sovereignly chosen or not? If it does say that, then you better come up with a better explanation than, well, you have to look at the broader context. And the reason why that is so ludicrous is the way that Paul ends uh, his argument here. Just after quoting that this is all about God, Jacob is saved on account of God's sovereign electing work, he punctuates his argument by saying, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's not about the possibility of salvation for Jacob. It's not as if it's open for Esau. Election secured Jacob's eternal salvation, and God's sovereign choice not to elect Esau secured his condemnation. Esau, I hated. It's not. It's not open. I mean, this guy's in the book here. This guy's argument is, you know, they're arguing against Paul and saying, "You're saying God failed. He promised that all the Israelites would be glorified, blessed, saved. He promised it to Abraham. He repeated the promise." through the prophets when they were in exile. And now you're saying, Paul, some of these guys are condemned. Well, God's word has failed. Well, this guy in the book is arguing the answer to that objection is, no, 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 no. They always had the possibility of being saved if they would put their faith in Christ. It's There's no contingency here. There's no possibility being talked about. He, he's saying, look, there are there is such a thing as an Israel that God has promised to save. The problem is you guys don't understand it doesn't extend just because you're a national Israelite. You have to be elect, whether you're of Jew or Gentile. You are labeled as a child of God because you are elect. You are one of the called. You are one of the seed. You are like Jacob and not like Esau. Now, we should make note, the guy does try to give his alternative understanding of that specific you know, verse there, this idea in verse 11 of the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand. 
he says that it is quite likely that the, quote, doing of good or bad, unquote, and the works and human desire or effort have reference to what Paul has targeted again and again throughout Romans, Jewish confidence that possessing and doing the Mosaic law will guarantee salvation. So that, really, he's not arguing that irrespective of anybody's works, God chooses to save some of them. He's just arguing that God doesn't save on the principle of works. And the problem with his supposed you know, interpretation of that expression or that phrase there in verse 11 is that it does not do justice to what's so obvious in verses 6 through 13, which is that it's not just talking about contingent or possible salvation for people. It's talking about particular people being saved according to God's purpose of election. He doesn't say in verse 6, for they may not all be Israel who are of Israel, or they may not, in verse 7, all be children because they are the seed of Abraham, or they may not all be counted children of the promise there in verse 7, unless they have faith in Christ. He says, no, most certainly there are those who are true Israel. There are those who are the true children of God. There are those who are the true children of the promise. There are Jacobs precisely because God has promised to make them so. This is not an issue. He's not arguing specifically wherever else in Romans and even in Romans 9 through 11, he may be talking about the principle of faith versus works. He's not talking about it here. He's talking here about God promising to save some people and most certainly saving them. So to sum this portion of our critique up, we go back to verse 6. Paul says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul can justify God here. you got to see that. Paul can justify God and his word here. And he does that by saying, The word didn't fail. Not all Israel is Israel. God has sovereignly applied his promises to his elect. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Hey, we want you to continue to join us next time on Sinners and Saints as we take on part two of the Arminian criticism of Calvinism from Romans chapter 9. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.